Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, and welcome to episode 25 of the Beneath the Cast podcast, produced by Wicked Local North Boston. I'm your host, Rob McCutcher. Joining me today is multimedia journalist for the Gahasset Mariner and host of the Sports Exchange show on 95.9 WATD-FM, Quinn Kelly. Quinn, thanks for joining me. Hey, thanks for having me, Robbie. Really excited to be here. Now, for those who don't know, Quinn graduated from BC in 2018, did sports broadcasting there, and he's grinding away, as we all are, just trying to make <laughs> Competitive sports media field and journalism field. So I know I'm talking to you, Quinn, that you started your job recently. So how's it going? It's going well. It's going well. Um, you know, I, at least with the paper, it's been nice to get into a community that uh, that is really enthusiastic about their local news. So that's that's made it easy on me. Um, and then getting to pick up, uh, you know, a little bit of sports coverage uh, now over the last couple of weeks is exciting. Just you know, for for my own interests. So what's going on right now with Gohassen? What's the most interesting thing, weirdest thing you've covered in the last couple of weeks? Because I know from my experience in Medford, there's always something that you don't expect. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I would say the most interesting thing right now is that they share a harbor with uh, Situate, which is the town next door to them. Uh, and Situate is looking to get into the oystering business. And cool. to do so, it would have to go through... Uh, as some portion of the water that is is technically under Cohasset's jurisdiction, so I know that that's that's a, a sticking point right now. So I'm interested to see how that shakes out over the next couple of weeks here. I know from covering different city council meetings, there's always these topics that come up that I would never think about would be an issue. People get really hot and bothered by it. Oh yeah. How are the people at your town so far? How are they on social media? How are the comments during the meeting? What's your take on the people so far in your town? Um, I, I'd say that they have a healthier understanding of the issues, I think, than I expected, because you, you, you come into a job like this and you kind of hear like even the people in my office working for different towns, like you kind of hear horror stories about, um, you know, people that just don't that are just, you know, keyboard warriors that just get behind the, the laptop and, and like to spew off and don't really have a good understanding of what's going on. Right, right. Uh, I'd say that people in Cohasset have a really good understanding of everything that's going on in the town and have a pretty realistic view of, of how things should go. And, and you know, like anybody, they, especially, you know, with Cohasset, they, they pay, you know, a, a pretty good premium on taxes. So there are certain things that they, you know, they want to make sure that they're getting and that's, you know, certainly their right to. So, uh, but yeah, they definitely, they're definitely informed, which makes my job pretty easy. So do they have selectmen there? Is it city council? Yeah, no, they have selectmen, uh, five, five selectmen. Um, there've been, I think just two selectmen meetings so far since I've, I've been in still pretty new at the job, but, um, they're, you know, they're, they're good and, and they're out and about in the community. So, you know, any event that I'm going to, to cover, I feel like I see one of the selectmen there. So it's definitely nice, good community feel. What is your take on the selectmen meetings? I know going to city council meetings in Medford, going to selectmen meetings in Danvers, they can go on for a while. You get the guys that are there for five <laughs> hours. Really need to get the question in. Yeah. What's the thought on the meetings overall? 
You know, it's so funny. I just don't understand if if they're held to a restriction on how long they can say a meeting is going to go when they post this <laughs> because you get in there and like everybody in there knows that you're not getting out before 11, but the agenda Unreal. you're getting out at nine 30. Like I don't understand. <laughs> it's the same thing. School committee meetings are the ones that I find are, are the, the worst offenders of that. Like a second, <laughs> 15 minutes, all of a sudden you've been there for an hour and it's still going on. I remember my first selective meeting in Danvers and it was two and a half hours in and I thought the meeting would be over. And then they say, all right, let's start with the agenda. I'm like, what? I haven't even gotten to it yet. <laughs> Had not even really started the agenda. It was one topic, one public hearing that lasted two and a half hours. Oh, it's amazing. getting to 10 o'clock at night and they're just starting the meeting. It was really a wake up call. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's the first week uh, or maybe even the first two weeks, I should say that I was on the job um, getting my feet wet with my first school committee meeting with my first selectman meeting, uh, at that point, trying to get to all of the different committees and, and make sure that you show face with every, everybody that, um, you know, you need to get to know. It was like, I wasn't, I was going to the office in the morning and then not getting in home until like 11 every night because all of these town meetings go so long, but I'll tell you what, it's, it speaks to all these people. You know, I know the selectman's a little bit different, but for all the committees, like they're all, you know, volunteer basis. So credit to them because they're just giving up all their time to do it. No, it's a really good point. I know the city council meetings in particular in Medford, they have committee of the whole meetings. They have the normal meetings that might last three to four hours, especially during the summer when they're not meeting every week. And then they have full-time jobs and then they're going to other meetings in town. The amount of time that these guys put in or women put in is really unbelievable given the fact that they're not really getting paid. No, it's crazy. And, and especially now, you know, I was never somebody that was super up on my my local government and the towns that I've lived in. But now working this job and getting involved, like you really see that these are the people that make the town go. And, and it is crazy that so much of it is on a volunteer basis. Have you seen any similar faces, similar names? I know you've, you're starting out there, but any, any similar names or comments from people so far that you've noticed? Uh, yeah, there are definitely a couple people that are, that are pretty active uh, on the Facebook group and, and, pretty good about going to a lot of town meetings and certainly have a lot to say. But again, usually, you know, there are people that have valuable things to say, you know, it's not just people getting, getting angry and, and needing to go out and voice their opinion. It, but you know, it's people that have, that have stuff to talk about. So. Yeah. It's always a wide range of people from my experience going oh, to yeah. many different meetings. You get the people that are very much informed and really want to make an impact or have an effect when they go there. And then the certain people that might have this specific issue that they talk about every sure. single time at around midnight. <laughs> and those are the people really that when you yeah. <laughs> speak, you do cringe a little bit because you know it's going to be on for a while. But in terms of the job itself, have you taken away anything from journalism? Because I think I told you this before, I think all jobs are learn as you go. But for journalism in particular, I think this is a job where you really don't know how to do it until you actually do it. I think experience is the most important thing. What have you taken away so far in the job? Well, the biggest thing is, you know, I've always prided myself a pretty good writer, but getting in and having to write for a newspaper is just something that's entirely different. Different, um, you know, my experience in the past was was writing for, um, you know, for our, our sports radio blog at, at BC when I was in school, right? And that's just, you know, free form. Write what you want. Obviously, it's a lot more opinion based, and even in your game coverage, you know, there's no. It was stylistic stuff that you have to hold to, but I think it was, you know, like the first article I put up, um, you know, putting it in the system and then having it go to my editor and then watching the, the finished product that came out online, just the, the number of like AP style format right. that I didn't do correctly. It was amazing. So, um, 
I think that uh, taking from this job is definitely uh, one. I know now how better to write in a uh, in a more news format, which is still a work in progress, and it will be, in, I'm sure, until I'm out of there. But um, but then on top of that, also being a lot more succinct uh, with your writing because it's easy to just get going and get hung up and on extraneous details, but you know, really not what this is for. So. Yeah, definitely writing in a tight manner, hearing a lot of information at a three, three and a half hour meeting, condensing it, finding out what's important is definitely oh, yeah. a thing that I've gotten better at a lot. Also the AP style is always a pain in the ass oh, yeah. and I still mess it up here and there. So it's definitely a work in progress, as I said, and a learn on the job. Even I've been here around a year and I'm still learning stuff all the time. But you did mention BC. I want to take it back to BC for a second. When did you know you wanted to go into the sports media field, get into radio? Was it freshman year? I know you were very involved with the sports radio station. As we've talked about a million times, you have a lot of friends in the area who did Boston College student radio. When did you first think about getting into it? So my junior year of high school, uh, a buddy of mine and I, uh, Johnny, who you know, he uh, he hosts the Sports Exchange with. Yeah. um, We started broadcasting uh, our high school's basketball and football games. And so by the time it came around to apply to colleges senior year, um, I was looking at uh, BC, which I actually applied into as uh, into the nursing program. And I was looking at Syracuse to go into into broadcasting. Um, And what really was the difference was Syracuse being six hours away and BC being a school that I grew up around and always wanted to go to. And how can you say no to BC? Uh, And so I picked BC. Uh, knew always knew that I was going to do sports radio club or, or whatever there was on campus as soon as I got there, no matter what school I went to, if it was some other school on my list or, you know, either one of those two schools. Um, but then once I got there, I, I loved it freshman year. I was really heavily involved. I got some great opportunities. Um, just was fortunate to be able to do, Stuff like going to the garden to call the bean pot as a freshman, which was, you know, just something that was unheard of and just kind of fell into my lap. Um, And combined that with just hating life in the nursing program (laughs) and realizing that it was something that when I came out of high school, I was like, oh, I don't know exactly what I would want to do. And that's good job security and steady pay as soon as you get out. Uh, of college. So maybe that's something I can do. And it so wasn't for me. Uh, and I laugh about it now because I should have been able to see that it was so not for me. Um, but so I decided probably midway freshman year, I was like, I'll, I'll give it one more semester in the nursing program, but I'd anticipate sophomore year, um, transferring out and, and, and getting into communications and, and taking a more serious approach towards trying to get into sports media down the road. Was there a memorable game? Obviously, you just mentioned the Bean Pop. Was there one game that you remember maybe later on in your college career for a big BC game that you thought was pretty cool? Yeah, um, there, there, there were a couple. Um, I was really fortunate to, to be down uh, in at NC State with my roommate who was on the call with me for that game. Uh, and it was the it was the football game that we broke our ACC winless streak um, it had been like two years since we'd won a conference game and we got to be down there for that. Uh, I would say I was on, uh, a call, a hockey game, which was always my favorite through school, um, with our mutual friend, Tony and, and another friend of ours, uh, for a Notre Dame hockey game. And we had gotten down. I want to say we were down four, nothing and came back to win five, four, 
Uh, and that was a super exciting call to be on. And I think that might have been there last year in Hockey East, too. So it was we don't see Notre Dame as regularly now. So that those were two of the, the big calls, uh, I would say. Um, but then overall, just getting I, I, I was able to call a game in the Garden at Fenway Park and at Gillette Stadium. So being able to check off all three Boston sports venues was really, really cool. I think from my personal experience, because I went in as a psychology major, I thought I might want to go into sports psychology. I didn't think of going into the sports media field until really my senior spring. I did a sports independent study on sports journalism, but I always did the radio just for fun. And I think for me, what I loved about it was the exhilaration feeling or the high that you get after covering a big game. Do you feel that in those big moments when you really when you really care and you're really in it and you hear the crowd? There's nothing like calling a game. No, there isn't. There, There isn't. <laughs> it's. It's just so fun. And, and especially when you get to do it with people that you love, um, you know, because especially where I went, it was always a battle at BC of um, the the casual fan versus the people who really cared. And so getting getting locked in a room for, for the three hours of the game, being totally locked into what's going on, not having anything going on around you and knowing that you're in there with people that are also intently focused and caring about this game. And and then being there for you know something big happening there there really isn't anything better. I know for Lafayette, my sophomore year, they won the Patriot League tournament and they won at home the final game against American and everyone stormed the court and then we were interviewing fans after the game and honestly that was one of my most memorable experiences from college was just interacting with my friend who I was doing the game with, interacting with the fans, then just being being able to call really a cool moment to get to the NCAA tournament. Yeah, that's that's the best of it because. You know, too, especially, you know, in college, you're not you don't have the same responsibilities of, you know, a guy who's doing it for a network or anything like right. you can enjoy the game. You can be a part of the game. And then afterwards, you can celebrate with everybody else. And speaking of BC, I was going to say this to the end, but as long as we're talking about it, let's talk about BC football very briefly. <laughs> All right. I was at the Kansas game. I think they had something like an 18 point spread or maybe even more. 21. And they lost by 24. Yep. Brutal look. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> going forward here, they are three and one. But. What is it going to be like against Clemson? Because Clemson looks tough to me. <laughs> oh, Clemson's going to hang 70 on us easy. <laughs> I'll be down in Clemson for that game, actually. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah, I'm excited to go down, but not like for the football. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm more concerned. Like We've got Wake this weekend, this, this Saturday, and I think they're going to steamroll us. Our defense just isn't where it needs to be. Um, I mean, we're, we're, we only have four returning starters, and we have like eight underclassmen starting. Um there, that Kansas loss, I, we, we've had this debate because the two years ago loss to, or no, last year's loss to FSU where they came from behind um, and won a game when they were just really an awful team last year. That was, that was an embarrassing loss, and that also took away our ability to finally get over the, the seven-win platform. This is the worst loss that we've taken in my time. Like this, to, to a 21-point favorite against Kansas and then losing by 24, that just shouldn't happen anywhere. I mean, that's not like, oh, you were in a rock fight and they snuck one out and like you just didn't come ready to play. Like they got dominated uh, and that is just inexcusable. So like now it's just a matter of like I was down in Rutgers this weekend actually too, feeling like, okay, well, this is such a must win. If we didn't win – in Rutgers, then you're looking at like a three-win season. But now, you know, who knows? I don't know. I don't know. It was embarrassing to watch. I'm not even a huge BC guy, but it was embarrassing to be there. It reminded me of Lafayette football, to be honest, because I had heard that Kansas lost to a FCS team uh, potentially the week before. Coastal Carolina. Yeah. <laughs> and then for BC to lose by 24, what do you think the spread's going to be against Clemson? 
Uh, I think we give them probably 28. Yeah. What, they had 34 week one against Georgia Tech, maybe. And we're like right there. We're maybe marginally better. So I, I wouldn't be surprised. It'll be at least three scores. I wouldn't be shocked if it's somewhere in the 28 range. Now, I do want to transition here before we talk about a couple more sports topics about the sports media field as a whole. Sure. You know, as I said, everyone out of college is grinding, trying to make it in the competitive sports media industry, whether you're going to sports media or journalism, media in itself, especially now is just so competitive, especially in the East Coast in the Boston area. How has your mindset been overall? Because I know for myself, sometimes I feel good, sometimes I feel de- bad, depending on the week. Sometimes I feel optimistic, pessimistic, excited about the field, annoyed that I might not hear back from something. How have you felt overall, your mindset-wise? Has it changed on a given day? How has it been for you in the past year, let's say? Yeah, it definitely it definitely changes. You know, I, I do our our um, game broadcast on Friday nights for the station WATD. Um, do the Sunday night show and you come out of there, right. And you'll have a, a good broadcast or a good show. And I feel really good, you know, with where I'm at and, and any right. people in the industry who are like, Oh, you know, you're at the station, you're getting airtime. Like you're in a really great spot. Um, but then, you know, you, you get, then you come back on Monday, right. And you know, you're not on air, you're in the office. And, and I, I tend to feel like, okay, really, you know, I'm, I'm kind of stagnant. I'm not moving in the right direction necessarily. Like, you know, I'm gaining good experience and this will help down the road, but you know, will it help down the road? You let the questions kind of creep in and whatnot. Um, but, you know, I got a really good piece of advice um, from from somebody I work with a, a couple of weeks ago. Um, you know, he said, you just got to kind of block out everything around you because the one thing they can't take from you is your craft. Um, you know, and as long as as, as you're, you're doing what you do and, and you're getting better at what you do, then, you know, they can't take that away from you and the brakes will fall your way. So, um, but that's, that's certainly the biggest battle for me is, is feeling like I'm not doing enough on the day to day, uh, to build a portfolio or to take the necessary steps forward. Um, but then, you know, you get in and, and you do it and, and I feel good about what I'm doing. And it's just a matter of, uh, finding the right steps, which, uh, as you said, especially here in, in, you know, in the Boston area can be so, so hard to do. I think for myself in particular, I always find it very important to not compare myself to others in terms of age yeah. and what I should be expected to do by this certain point, because people go at the industry in a, a lot of different ways. And if you compare yourself to some kid who just graduated college, he already has a beat reporter job at the Red Sox, or he had a bunch of different internships in college. So therefore, he already has a full-time job at Bleacher Report. I think it can get dangerous. And I think yeah, from yeah. my perspective, I've listened to a lot of guys on the radio and how they've made it, such as Jim Murray or a Hardy was another. And yeah, Adam Jones is a guy that I always point to is like, if I could be where Adam Jones is in eight years, right. like I'd be amazing. And I think from those guys' perspective, I hear Jim Murray when he says he's 36 and he has a full-time job, full-time radio job in New Hampshire or someplace, and then he quits that to take a part-time job at 98.5 when he's 38 and he's working at bars, and ultimately he gets to where he is. So I always find that you have to ignore where other people are at in the field and really focus on yourself and basically just try to gain experience that will ultimately, hopefully, keep continuing forward. Yeah, no, I think that's uh, that's absolutely it. I mean... Yeah, you know, I'll give you an example. I, my one of my roommates, his brother roomed uh, with this guy Mike Monaco at Notre Dame, and Mike is the Paw Sox broadcaster. And when OB missed a few games for the Red Sox because he's doing all the ACC Network stuff now, Mike got to do a couple of Red Sox broadcasts. Mike's like twenty six, seven years old, 
you know, like that's insane. Right. And right. You know, you think you're like, okay, well, clearly I'm not doing enough. And right. that's where he's at, but you're so right. Like it can't be that because for as much as, you know, you want to look at and be like, oh, all right, these guys are scooping up the top jobs and you know, these are the places I want to get to. There really is so many opportunities, really are so many opportunities in the industry um, and places that you can find your kind of niche and, and find places that above anything else, most importantly, like you're going to be happy at. Um, so I think you're spot on. You, you just have to, you just have to keep your nose down, uh, just keep grinding and not worry about, you know, where other people are ending up. I've got two more topics for you that I want to end on. Number one is Antonio Brown. We had we couldn't leave the conversation without talking about this guy. <laughs> I think this guy's a bad guy. It's that simple. I don't know if he did what people are accusing him of doing, yeah. but regardless of that, based on what I've seen from his behavior alone, I have no use for the guy. I don't get why the Pats even signed him in the first place because I don't think they need him to win another Super Bowl. Yeah. He was recently released, which I was thrilled about. It was some breaking news. But what is your take on the whole Antonio Brown situation? Because – as I said, I just don't like the guy. I don't know why the pass it in the first place. So it's interesting. First and foremost, I'll say that that for any opinion that I had on him, he him being here made sports talk radio unbearable for two. <laughs> Agreed. Just couldn't listen to it. it because and credit to those guys too, because especially with the sexual assault stuff, like that's such a sticky topic to dance around and to have to do it for four hours. Um, you know, it's just, I don't know how they did it. Um, I'll say this. I, it's, it, you can't, whether he's guilty or not, there's stuff going on. Um, you know, and he's, he's clearly proven in some measure that, that he's not a good guy. Right. And, and if everything is, is true, then he clearly shouldn't be here and he shouldn't be playing at all. If it's not true, he's still got some character issues, but you know, he should be, he should be have his slate cleaned in the court of public opinion, which it will not be. But if, if, if he's innocent of, you know, of everything, then it should be. Um, I, you know, you hold out hope in this situation. So I'm, I was not on your, your side, Robbie. I, I didn't, I had a lot of questions about the signing at first. I wasn't really a fan of it and then got kind of sucked into it a little bit. He, I would have, I would have liked him to straighten things out. You know, I would have, I don't think that we need him, but you know, he was a great player and we'd be better with him than without him. Uh, but clearly there's something going on. And my, my biggest thing with him, and I, I said this uh, when we were doing our show Sunday and I don't think it's getting talked about at all. Like he strikes me as, as somebody that's dealing with like a mental illness. You know, I know people want to jump on like, Oh, maybe he's got CTE. Like, he strikes me as somebody that's gone off their meds, right? Like, and, and if it turns out that he's innocent of a lot of this stuff and a lot of his erratic behavior is because he's got mental issues going on, then, you know, he's a little bit of a sympathetic figure in my eyes. Now that's a huge stretch. I don't think that's necessarily what is going on, but I, I just, there's gotta be some assessment of what is wrong with him and more than just calling him stupid or calling him crazy. There's definitely something wrong with him. Whether the the case or the accusations against him were true or not, it really didn't change my opinion on whether I'd want the guy on the team. Obviously, yeah, that's fair enough. Obviously, if it's true, then he's a million times worse than I think he is. I just right. think his actions alone in Oakland are not actions from a person who I'd want on my team, who I want to root for. Basically, forcing himself out the way he did, and then celebrating when they release him. I just thought the whole situation was a terrible look, terrible look for the Patriots. 
And yes, if he has some sort of mental illness, then obviously there's more sympathy there. I will say this, though. There are many people who battle mental illnesses who didn't do the type of stuff he does. Oh, no. He doesn't try to behave <laughs> right. like he does in text messages. So right. I do – obviously, there's more sympathy for someone who may have a mental illness. But look at Josh Gordon. The guy's battled addiction. Yeah. The guy's battled mental illness. He's battled depression. And he's a guy I absolutely want to root for and is very sympathetic. I just yeah. don't see it. Antonio Brown is the same way. No, there's there's more sympathy, but there's not necessarily forgiveness by, by any stretch. Right. Um, and no, I, I went up and down with it. Like I said, you know, I wasn't a fan when they first brought him in. Then I was okay with it because I really – until the you know until the accusations broke – I was so team there was some type of tampering to get him here. Like, oh yeah, I totally <laughs> felt like that was such an act in Oakland and he was getting himself out the door because he knew it was going to be a bad season and he knew that New England wanted him and he knew if he got released, he could go there. Like, I totally buy in on that. I don't think that's one of these, like, stay woke takes. I think that is absolutely what had happened. Um, and then, you know, I was fine. Then the allegations come out and it's, you know – it's a frustrating couple of weeks, but I still want him on the team as long as, as you know, if he's, if he's innocent of what he's being accused of, I want him on the team. But then that took a huge hit Sunday. He just, the dancing after every reception was just oh, oh so annoying to watch. It was just insufferable. It was. He's like a child. It was just too much. I just couldn't take the crowd getting behind this guy. I'm sorry. I want the Patriots to win, and I think they're going to win a Super Bowl. They might go 19-0 regardless of where they have the guy on the team. So to me, it's not even a win factor. Yeah, I just like to like the guys who I'm rooting for. And to see all of New England get behind this guy, I just didn't like to see it. And Felger and Maz made the point, do you really want this guy to represent your team where you can go 19-0 anyway? And I did not. <laughs> yeah, and, that's, and I think that's probably the right take. I think that, you know, I, I'm certainly guilty of it too. I think that – that a lot of times we'll, we'll kind of, you know, sell our fan souls for the sake of having, you know, a good player around. And I'm just going to ignore what he's doing off the field because he can help us on the field. And, you know, that, that's a dangerous you know line to walk. And, and this guy would have been somebody that maybe would have been on the wrong side of that line. Why do you think he was ultimately released? Because it did seem like a Kraft decision versus a Belichick decision. You think Kraft just had enough? Or it just seemed odd to me that at this point, that was the breaking point after all he had done. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it just it's a matter of stuff that happened before he was with the organization and then and then having it happen while he was here. Um, I, th- that's that. That's why I guess I support that being the final straw. I can't even imagine with all the stuff going on and all the breaks that really he is caught in for everything that maybe it isn't true about him. Even just to still be on the field amidst all of this is is such a boon for him. And for him to send those text messages, like, what are you doing? Just put the phone away. Like, I don't understand that. That's just as dumb as you can be. And so I think that really, you know, everything that happens before the Patriots can kind of brush off and say, you know, that has no effect on, on the logo, on, on the brand. Um, but once you do it when, when you're in here, then clearly, one, you're committing the cardinal sin of not dedicating the entirety of your focus to the football field. And two, you know, you're doing something that's that's going to have our our logo next to it, our brand uh, marked with it. And, you know, the craft's not going to stand for that. But I think it's so interesting that, you know, the reports are coming out that that certainly wasn't the team that that players and coaches didn't want him released. And that that really was a craft decision. And I think Felger Mazza talked about this week that Kraft was being hypocritical and. 
it's hard to think that it was a moral decision. It has to be just a bad look in terms of PR for the team because, yeah. again, I don't think what he did with the text messages was that much worse than anything else he had done in the past month or so. So it just seemed odd to me that at this point, that was the breaking point. And as you said, because he did it as a New England Patriot, but to me, why does it matter if he did it as a Patriot or with another team? He's still representing his character as a person. No, I think you're absolutely right. And, and be different because the reality is, is that you brought him in and you can claim innocence right. that you didn't know what was going on. But, but you did. Um, and, you know, at the reality, though, and why I can't support Kraft and why I don't think it's really hypocritical is that, you know, at the end of the day, the Patriots are what, the seventh most valuable sports franchise in the world. And, you know, there's no need to take a PR hit for a guy that, that you don't need. Right. Like if it's if it's Tom Brady that's going out doing doing all this crap, you're going to let the brand suffer a little bit because it's Tom Brady. But you don't need this guy here, so there's there's no point in, well, in losing. Well, in my opinion, good riddance to that guy. I'm glad he's gone. Now we can enjoy them slaughter the Bills as they do every year. And the season will start in Week Nine, but it really starts in the playoffs. But last point before we end here, let's talk about this really briefly. Switching gears to the Sox. Yeah, we've talked about it before on your show, and I came on a couple of times, but it really was an underachievement of yeah. by a team with basically the same roster and won it all last year. There's six games left in the season, but it's over at this point. It's been over for some time, so. What's your final thought on the Red Sox and the disappointment of a season that was this team this past season? Well, the biggest disappointment is that they couldn't even keep it interesting until the Patriots started, that we had to like suffer through months of terrible baseball. You could <laughs> football season. No, this is, you know, incredible. I, I actually kind of think, you know, probably, probably for the best move on from Dombrowski. But that being said, I, I, them making him out as a scapegoat is so dumb to me because at the end of the day, like it's the same roster. It's, it's the player's fault. Like it's the players and the coach's fault that they didn't perform the way they should have. It's not the Browskis. Um, and I think that it's, it's amazing they, they have just a terrible habit of winning one year. And then all of a sudden it's like the sky is coming down and, and Robbie, I mean, we could be, we could be talking about two, three years down the road, them winning another world series. Cause that's just the way it's gone around here. But there are some question marks going into next year. They have so much money tied up. You're probably watching Mookie walk out the door. I really wonder what's going to happen with JD in the wake of that, if he's going to have interest in being around here. Um, and, and, and you look to next year, like you've got so much to figure out with that bullpen and really with the starting rotation, because you just got to find a way to keep these guys healthy one. And, and, and you got to figure out what the heck your $30 million man and Chris sale is. Um, but then, you know, with all of that happening, you're also you're not going to get the same production from Xander. You're not going to get the same production from Rafi. You're not going to get the same production from Vasquez. Like they did so much right offensively that they should have taken a step forward from where they were last year and, and took a huge step back. And now, you know, you just wonder about that team going forward. And I agree with you that Dombrowski didn't deserve to be fired, but I do think that, as you said, with the nature of the team, they needed a guy to come in here and fix the farm system. And there's been some rumblings, I know, by Tony Maz and others, bring Theo in, make him a part owner, give him a big-time deal and have him in his term with the Sox. What's your thoughts on potentially bringing Theo back? I know it's probably unlikely, but I would love to see Theo. I'd love to see Theo back, but I think that knowing that to get him here, you would have to give up part ownership. Like there is no way that John <laughs> is going to do that. There's a 0% chance that they give Theo an ownership stake. 
I just, I can't imagine it. I'd love it. Um, I don't like the idea that we're just rocking it with some dude from within. Like, I can't even remember what his name is, but um, I, yeah, I mean, it's, it should be a top three most attractive places to land in baseball if you're a GM. But man, they just got nothing going on in the farm system. So you're kind of strapped as soon as you walk in. Plus, you've got an ownership group that has now decided they're not going to spend any more money. So is it really even that attractive a job anymore? That That's the biggest case. So you wonder if something like with Theo, where they have to give up a stake in ownership to get a big name in here is something that they're going to have to do. Well, we're going to leave it on that negative note with the socks. Quinn, <laughs> thanks good. so much for joining me, man. I appreciate it. Hey, thanks. Thanks for having me, Robbie. Well, make sure to follow Quinn on Twitter at the underscore Quinn underscore Kelly and tune into his sports show, The Sports Exchange, on Sunday evenings from 5 to 7 on WATD FM 95.9. Thanks again so much to Quinn Kelly for joining the podcast. It was great talking to him, hearing his perspective. As I said, it's always great talking with another person who's in similar age, in a similar stage in their career, trying to make it in the sports media field or the journalism field or the media field as a whole. Because as I said... It's a really tough field to make it. It's a grind every day. You're trying to do things that will ultimately help you going forward. And I really enjoy talking with people like Quinn who are very thoughtful people and have a good perspective on it. And from anyone hearing the conversation, Quinn is clearly a very articulate, smart guy who really knows his sports, can back up his arguments well. So everyone check out the Sports Exchange show on his radio station, WATD FM 95.9, Sunday evenings from 5 to 7. He does a really great job with his other partners. So definitely tune into that. But I want to end the podcast very briefly because, again, we did discuss a couple of major topics that I did want to hit on. We have the Buffalo Bills coming up this week, 3-0 and matchups. But, again, it's going to be another slaughter. It's just ridiculous. Week 9 is really the first game of the year in terms of maybe facing an opponent. I believe they're playing the Ravens then. But even so... This team could very much go 19-0, and again, that's why I said I just didn't understand the Antonio Brown situation. If this team was struggling at all and they needed that offensive firepower from an Antonio Brown, then sure, maybe you try out him in that case. I just thought the cost-benefit analysis didn't make sense for the team. To me, it's really that simple. I didn't expect this team to be moral. No team is. They're not signing guys based on if they're a good guy. They're signing guys on the contract, whether they're going to make a difference in the locker room in terms of helping them get wins and how bad the PR is in relation to those sorts of things. So ultimately the benefit to have Antonio Brown was not big enough for Kraft as the PR hit. And that it's really that simple. And as I said to Quinn, I don't know why it took him so long. And I do think it's a little hypocritical by Kraft because although maybe this was the first time he did it with the Patriots, it's common knowledge what he was doing. It was out on social media. Just because it wasn't part of your team doesn't mean it didn't happen. And for Kraft, it was obviously a PR decision. It's that simple. They don't get any moral points for releasing him. It looks bad for bringing him in. And I'm glad he's gone. Brutal watching the game and the crowd get behind this guy. He's just not a likable dude. So for that reason alone, it's going to be much more enjoyable to watch the team. That AB is gone. We can focus on guys like Josh Gordon, who I said, who has battled mental illness and is a very sympathetic character. And made two unbelievable catches, playing through pain, playing through dislocated fingers, speaking well in press conferences. Josh Gordon seems like the ultimate team guy. So I love what I've seen from Gordon. I want to root for him. I want to root for Dorsett. 
I want to root for Jacoby Myers. I want to root for the running backs. I don't want to root for Antonio Brown. I'm glad he's gone. The Pats never should have signed him, and it took way too long to release him. And I'm glad we're able to focus on the team that we do like because this team is so good that the fans should not have to sacrifice rooting for a guy that doesn't represent the team well. And a guy that we don't want to root for itself. So, again, if this was a team that was not great, then maybe you put the risk on getting a guy like that. To me, it just didn't make sense. Now, finally, there's been a lot of talk on Twitter about Bill Belichick in his interview with Dana Jacobson. Now, he's received a lot of flack for it, as he should, for basically giving her the, quote, the death stare, basically at the end of the interview when she asked him about Antonio Brown. And... First of all, there's two camps here. There's the one camp that's always backing Belichick like Barstool and joking about it and saying, oh, well, he's just doing his job. She's doing her job. Even Dana Jacobson said that. She's just doing her job. He did his. And to me, first of all, that is just not a good explanation for what happened. It's not his job to basically bully the reporter, glare at them, humiliate them, make them look bad for asking a question, doing their job. It's his job if he just said, I'm not going to answer that question in a respectful way. But he went too far. And no, it's not a little thing by glaring at it. It's about power. It's about humiliation. And this is not a man-woman thing. This is a coach-reporter thing. Bill just does this to everyone. So it's definitely not a woman issue here. But... This is how he treats all reporters all the time. And sometimes he laughs about it. And in that case, it is funny. Sometimes it's a little less harsh and it's funny then. There are absolutely times when Belichick is annoying with reporters that I think is hilarious. However, the times when he's just being a complete jerk to them and is bullying them and humiliates them and makes them look bad from someone who interviews people all the time, I just don't respect that. I just don't respect Bill that much as a person. I've said it a million times. So yes, he's a great coach. But stuff like this from Belichick drives me nuts really makes me question his character and people who are saying it's not a big deal well how would you like to be the person who's humiliated and has to ask the questions every single time and you have to do it because it's your job and bill makes you look like an idiot he does it time and time again and i just don't like it so i don't think it's the biggest deal in the world however i don't think it's a good luck to treat reporters that way and i don't think that's a ridiculous statement for me to say i just don't agree that you should treat people that way it doesn't matter what your job is it doesn't matter what you're doing the reason why Belichick is paid so much and the NFL gets paid so much is because they have this coverage on TV and people care about it. So when those people who get paid to be on TV are asking you certain questions that they have to do and you make them look like an idiot, it's a bad look. I'm sorry, and I don't like to see it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure to check out my other episodes on the Wicked Local North of Boston website or on my social media accounts. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Robbie McKittrick for the latest podcast information. Thanks so much for listening. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.